Hello and welcome to the Trans Questioning Podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Zedek. Good morning. It is uh, Saturday, May 28th at 8.20 a.m. Um, I'm walking around in my little clown shoes, turning lights on. Clown shoes. They look like clown shoes. They're my slippers. My wool slippers. That I wear socks with anyway, because I'm a psychopath. Uh, I'm carrying my phone around. I just woke up about 20 minutes ago. Actually, a little bit longer than 20 minutes ago, because I woke up like... God, I woke up just a few minutes before my alarm. Um, as I am so wont to do. I've made a mistake by starting to record on my phone, because I can't be too loud, because Zoe's asleep. And I gotta carry the phone around with me. Well, anyway, hello. Um, I'm doing a podcast again. I've decided I'm doing a podcast again. Um, Excuse me while I uh, empty my coffee carafe here. Just doing this like a classic TQ and doing other shit while I'm doing it. Gotta get my coffee on. Because it is 8.21 a.m. now. And I need caffeine. So, what have I been up to? I have been up to a number of things. Um, gotta clear out all this mess we made from from uh, making dinner last night. All this trash everywhere. Empty ice cream carton. Other stuff, plastic bag. Jeez, <laughs> uh, what have I been up to? I'm gonna have to grind some coffee here in a second. Um, I have been trying to get back to work, but it's been tough. Uh, the last, the last like last year has been. Just a, a hell of a time all around. Um, uh, yeah, so it turns out that the promise, the semi-promise of the last episode, that it would be the last episode, was... Well, I guess it was true, because that episode was called The Last Episode, unless it isn't. So I wasn't wrong, because it isn't the last episode. Um, although maybe at this point, by now, you're wishing it was, because the audio quality of this sucks, because... I, like a jackass, decided to record on my phone. Speaking of which, I'm gonna grind some coffee here. I'm gonna carry you a little bit further away from the coffee grinder so it's not blaring in your ears. Uh, return, I'll return momentarily.
see. I've got to. Um, I've got to cover my coffee grinder with a blanket. Otherwise, it's so loud it wakes up my soul. And that's when the bad things happen. What am I saying? I need coffee. <laughs> Um, let's get this coffee boiling. Oh no, I got coffee grounds in my coffee cup. Wow. That's good enough. That's cleaner. Cleaner. That's what matters. Ah, there's, there's water. Yeah. Wow. Oh. So I'm finally, uh, what am I finally? I fell off my HRT for a little bit. Again, I'm finally starting it back up to my normal dose. Um, pardon me while I get some bread ready to toast. I, uh... My, the clinic that I was going to that did my therapy, gave me my brain drugs, uh, it closed down. And I'm having a hell of a time finding wherever, wherever else might take um, Medicaid and also give me ADHD drugs without treating me like an addict. Which is always cool. Um, it's cool how everything just sort of collapses this time in our lives. It's really fun living through the collapse of the American Empire. I mean, it is very funny. I get a lot out of watching the Democrats um, shuffle around like corpses in the hallowed halls of... <laughs> fucking Congress. Um, and just sort of completely failing to do anything right or just do anything at all. Um, but it stops being as funny when you're. <laughs> when you catch COVID. I don't have COVID right now. I had COVID like a month ago. Um, but you catch COVID and you see them being like, we got to get, get sent, we got to send hundreds of millions of dollars to Ukraine for, for military aid. We got to give them money for guns and, oh, and, and $1.9 trillion of unspent COVID, was it trillion or was it billion? I don't remember. It might have been billion. $1.9 billion of unspent COVID relief. Yeah, let's throw that at cops. You know who in this country needs financial relief right now? The fucking police. The people who stand around lazily outside of an active shooter thing going like, no, are you kidding me, man? I'm not going to put my life on, on the line for a bunch of brown kids. Those kids are going to grow up to be the criminals that try to kill me and my family. I'm not going to go in there with my 
full body armor and my semi-automatic rifles and my fucking whatever the hell else it is that I have as a, as a fucking cop. <sighs> anyway, this is why I haven't done a podcast in a while, because all that is on my mind anymore is just um, how fucking everything the world is and how bad that everything seems to be how much worse it seems to get um but we're here i've been trying to get a podcast going again um for a while i uh i uh, was you know i was planning for such a long time to put tq to bed and get started on gender punk the problem with gender punk is well, I don't know. The problem is complicated. Um, it's a... Every time that I have almost gotten to the point of making it real, something, is, something has come up and uh, uh, made it difficult. And I've been tempted to just do it myself uh, and basically just have it replace uh, TQ in the TQ feed and just sort of pretend that this was the show it always was. Partially, my, my devotion to Genderbunk at this point is, is just because I think I'm, I made some pretty good cover art for it, and Molly made, like, just a fucking stellar uh, intro song. It's, like, it's so good. I think I might have played it in the last episode of, of this podcast. I don't remember... Which tells you how long all this shit has been in development. Um, oh, I can't wait to drink some coffee. Doing this before I made coffee was a mistake. Um, now I'm making toast. Um, what the hell was I saying? Right, the world we live in. Um, yeah. I've been wanting to get a podcast going for a bit now because I don't know. I, I, I kind of miss doing it, and I don't know. It worked last time, um, but it's it's tough to want to uh, to want to talk about your life at a time when it seems like absolutely nothing in your life is going very well. Um, so I guess I should talk a little bit about that. Just as soon as I have a nice cup of coffee. And I am in fact drinking this out of my uh, novelty Twin Peaks bug. from the Salish Lodge, uh, which is the Great Northern of legend, the real-life location of the Great Northern, I should say. I need to get back up there one of these days and um, revisit Tweeds, which is the Double R Diner, because... They're fucking... They've got really great mugs there. Oh, wait. Toast. Toast is over here. 
Oh, I made toast while recording a podcast. Oh, that's a bad auditory experience. Oh, no, I can't eat that while recording. Hmm. 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 What if I were to pause and come back? Maybe wake up and then come back. God. Recording a podcast in sections. And returning to it. Ugh. What will they think of next? Oh. Welcome back. I am now uh, sitting at my desk and recording uh, in a real microphone. Like a fucking adult. Oh, wow. These levels are very low. Where are they? What if I just... I can just... <laughs> I love how in um, Adobe Premiere, uh, Adobe Audition... Um, when you're recording, you can see the waveform as you're talking, and I'm like, oh, but the levels seem so low, and then I just use my scroll wheel while hovering over the the volume range, and it zooms in on the on the waveform, and now it fills up the whole screen, and I'm like, no, the levels aren't low at all. This is perfect. <laughs> all right, um, it is now 8:56 a.m. I have eaten my toast. I am still drinking my coffee, um, so if there's some um, mouth noises, as always, uh, that is a hazard with me. Um, so I've been reading uh, this book. Uh, a few days ago, um, I went out to this cool leftist bookstore and uh, got a couple of little books. I've been I've been picking up sort of extended pamphlets, little thin little books that are like, you know, 100, 150 pages, just because I've found them to be really interesting. I've, I, I, I picked up um, <clears throat> uh, You Have No Nation by uh, Mary E. Marcy, which is a, a collection of, of, of essays written by a pamphleteer, Mary Marcy, against entering World War One, And uh, that, was, that was very uh, illuminating as a read. So I found this book, Acceptable Men, by uh, Noel Ignatiev. I don't know how to pronounce that name. I hope I got it right. Um, but it is a memoir. Uh, the subtitle is Life in the Largest Steel Mill in the World. Um, it is the memoir of this guy who went and joined, worked at a steel mill, uh, the largest uh, steel Gary works in Gary, Indiana and uh, worked there among the steel workers for many years and was writing of, of the racism present there that was holding back the, um, the union efforts. And increasingly, it seems the theme of this book, the, the author is explicitly calls himself a communist revolutionary. I mean, it opens with a Marx and Engels quote. I, uh, there, there are so many little interesting things about this because it's like, um, this is the classic model of work. If you remember my earlier videos, I did the labor of art ages ago. And in that I talk about how um, we have disconnected from uh, or, or our definition of work is sort of outdated because we still tend to think of it in terms of like you're pulling levers and pressing buttons and you're sweaty and you're covered in ash or whatever. Like that's work. And anything you're not doing, or anything you're doing that's not that, isn't work. 
that's obviously a a bad way of looking at things, but that seems to be the sort of background radiation of our time. Um, but so this is this is a book that is about that about about that like we're going to the the lever and button factory to push levers and press buttons. And what's interesting about it is that the main theme of this book seems to be workers agitating for the right to be lazy. Let me find this particular bit. All right. I like standing on the cast house floor during a cast. An operator in a glass-enclosed booth moves levers that control an eight-foot-long drill, maneuvering it into the tap hole and starts the screw turning. When the hole opens, sparks fly across the cast house floor and the red-hot iron flows into the troughs banked with sand. From time to time, workers close a gate in one trough and open another, redirecting the iron into ladle cars that are open at the top. They then wait below to carry the iron to the next step in the process of making steel. When the iron has been tapped and the cinder, slag, waste floating on the iron, has been run off, the clay man stops the hole with clay. Normally there were two or three casts per shift. Between casts, the furnace crew, working cooperatively, readies the troughs for the next cast and refills the mud gun. When this is done, they rest. The company considers it slack time, but the rhythm of steel making is largely determined by the men on the cast house floor. Jackson tells me that years ago, the U.S. steel management tried to change this system by redefining and combining jobs in order to eliminate what they considered to be empty time between casts. Eliminating such empty time was to management a time when their workers were not directly producing wealth for the stockholders. The workers responded with a three-month strike that left the existing job categories intact and allowed them a bit of freedom. So this is, this is, this is, this is an account of a three-month strike to give the workers the ability to uh, rest on the job more by not working as much. I feel like we understand. The reason why this book is 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 sort of stinging my brain so much, and I, like I've been I've been reading it a lot the last couple of days and thinking about it, um, is that we tend to think of labor organizing and union st- uh, strike efforts as like we want better pay, and we want less work hours, but we don't tend to think of the function of a union being to affect the process of the work itself in terms of like, I think there's safety measures and there's, um, there's, there's ways of improving the process of doing the work, depending on whatever the job is. But I feel like, you know, there's, I, I don't think that there's anybody in the, the Starbucks unionization push happening right now who is saying we need to uh, strike for the right to not have to be standing on our feet the entire shift. Um, you don't necessarily have people, as far as I know, maybe there is, I, I shouldn't I shouldn't assume, but it doesn't feel like the common imaginary of unions as we have it right now uh, is, is one that would be in support of working less while on the job. I feel like that is sort of um, forbidden 
as a concept. I feel like if you tried to push that, conservatives especially would be so furious. And liberals too, honestly. This country, we have such a, a cult of work. Like you, you've got to always be hustling and turning every second of your life into uh, some sort of vein for a mining operator of capital to extract wealth from, from the excess time uh, that you now spend on social media or making slash listening to podcasts. I guess I shouldn't slack off podcasts. Slack off? Slag off podcasts. What am I? I'm not, I'm not from the UK. I'm from Oklahoma. Anyway, let me find another section from this book. Because um, it, it, this, this book is profound to me, particularly because it is people working at the, the button and lever factory who are going on strike for the right to do less work while on the job. Okay, here's another section uh, that I want to read, and this one's a little bit longer, so just uh, stick with me here. At first, I could not understand why it was necessary to change shifts every week nor did anyone explain it to me. But after working each turn, I figured it out myself. Blast furnace operation is continuous. Unlike an assembly line, the furnaces can't be shut down for the weekend. Three hour, eight-hour slots every day times seven days means 21 turns each week. Each job, therefore, is rotated among four workers, with the 21st opening being filled by overtime or by a designated swingman who works a different spot each day. The solution is the system adopted by every steel mill, shift work, with shifts and days off rotated weekly. Some had suggested changing shifts monthly instead of weekly or even the firehouse system, 24 hours on, 48 off, but given the 8-hour day and the 5-day week, both of these would have required overtime premium pay. Shift workers pick up their time cards from guards at the front gate and walk, or catch a shuttle bus, to their workstations, where they relieve the person before them. If the person they were to relieve was out on a call, his relief was expected to show up there. The foreman on each shift signs the time cards. Although the shifts officially began on the hour, 8 a.m., 4 p.m., midnight, Normally, workers allow an extra half hour for relief. A dinner or lunch break is not structured into the eight hours. Workers bring food from home and eat when they can. Many keep canned goods in their lockers for emergencies or in case they worked overtime. One fellow was notorious for not keeping canned goods in his locker, mooching whenever he was called upon to work overtime. His workmates cured him by giving him a can of dog food, which they told him was corned beef. The relief system is a constant source of tension among the workers, since some are more reliably prompt than others. If a worker feels cheated, he could exact retribution by showing up late for his turn, thus putting all turns on the hour. The system of picking up our time cards at the gates and having them signed by the foreman and the individual crew allows for a great deal of flexibility. At a nearby mill owned by another company, the management tried for several years to replace the system with one in which workers punched in at the entrance, as is the case in most industries. The workers responded with several strikes, which appeared a mystery to all those unfamiliar with mill custom. Why should people care where they hand in their cards? It turns out that many workers have private arrangements with their foremen, which allow them to hand in their cards and then disappear for the rest of their shift. Having to hand in their time cards at the entrance to plant guards I did not know would have interfered with those arrangements. 
Most workers who do shift work prefer it to straight days. More free time to get things done and not so many big shots looking over your shoulder were the most common explanations. One of the compensations of shift work is the chance to get a little sleep on midnights. Sleeping on the midnight turn is universal throughout the mill among maintenance workers. Occasionally, someone in authority makes noises about the men sleeping on the job. The response is a chorus of snores. When I first came to the mill, I was puzzled by management's being willing to tolerate employees sleeping on company time. No choice, explained Jackson. They know that no one could work this schedule if they didn't get a chance to close their eyes on the job. <clears throat> Sorry, to close their eyes on the job. So this this is really interesting to me, uh, I think, for, for, for obvious reasons. My first, like, real job was at uh, Walmart, working frozen food overnights, uh, stocking frozen food. I remember... One of the managers gave me a ride home one day, and like he and another manager were close friends, and they'd been doing grocery store management for a long time. And he he referred to me like he was like, you know, Sarah, except he said my dead name. You're you've got you've got a you've got a strong worth work ethic, you know. And if if this were if this were my store, you know. We, in, in the industry, we call, we call people like you donkeys because uh, you carry all the weight. And, um, and if this were my store, you know, we'd, we'd, we'd do right by you. When you find a donkey, you treat them well. You, you, know, you, you buy lunch for them, whatever, whatever. But, but here they just sort of work you to the bone. And I, 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 I've reflected on that, on, on that story many times over the years, uh, being referred to as a donkey by a boss. <laughs> and there was a time when I took some pride in that because uh, I am a hard worker. Um, and I come from, I come from a family of like on one side nurses on the other side, construction workers. And, um, for whatever else you might say of my creative output, I, I'm not, I'm not, particularly lazy when I when there's something to be done I want to do it and get it out of the damn way so you know being told I'm a I'm a I'm a, I'm a workhorse I'm a donkey that felt I felt good but over the years it sort of like soured for me so I've thought about how like I was I was there I was their workhorse on that shift but what did I get for it I didn't have insurance I could have you know, I had the choice to get insurance, but I didn't take it because that took a pretty substantial chunk out of my paycheck. Uh, and I was 19. Fuck that. <laughs> um, I need all the money I can get. I, I, I didn't, there was no like retirement. It was just, it was just a, a bad job. And uh, I, was, I was treated with disrespect by a lot of people involved. My time wasn't respected. And just generally thinking back on all the jobs I've had over the years, it's like always there's the specter of management with the with the whip ready to crack. You know, if you've if you've got time to lean, you've got time to clean. Genuinely actually got that shit when I was working at a grocery store. I think about the way that we have been trained to think of our work life as not our own. I'm going to be, I feel like this is going to become uh, a thing that everybody does now, but 
comparing it to the TV show Severance, I think one of the things that Severance does really, really well, and it does a lot of things really well, is it, it, it sort of perfectly encapsulates the American labor system as it stands right now with a metaphor of hollowing out a piece of your brain to create a work sona who does the work for you for eight hours a day and you have no memory of the work. This is what corporations have been wanting to do for decades. This is like the ideal sort of concept of work for, for a corporation that is profit-seeking. And you put that in context with, um, with like content creators, Ugh. you know, Instagram and, and TikTok and YouTube and, 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 you know, even flipping it, flipping that to the, the rest of the gig economy with DoorDash and Uber, uh, Fiverr, et cetera, et cetera. All of these things demand an atomization of work time where everything is like you're no longer an employee you're essentially a work volunteer and so the free time that you can muster is time that you can turn into profit and of course whatever meager returns you get on say ad revenue or whatever the corporation that creates the platform or owns the platform that you are using makes all of its money uh, makes makes a ton of money and it is this process by which all of our free time yes yeah, atomized and, and turned into a resource to be mined by corporations by eliminating employment by eliminating the workplace actually there's another bit in here that stuck out to me noel is is uh, now a few chapters in um, relating his history with labor organizing um, there's two little bits that I want to read here, and then I'll be done uh, reading bits from this book. First, just related to, relating to the point about workers having the right to not work while on the job. The first factory where I worked employed a couple of hundred people, making the lamps that were suspended over the city's streets. My first job was as an assembler. After a few months, I was upgraded to the position of drill press operator at 10 cents per hour more. There I learned my first lesson of factory life. My fellow workers taught me how to run the machine and also how to sabotage it when I needed a break. They taught me what was a reasonable amount of work to turn out so that I neither broke the rate nor let my fellow workers down. And that's interesting to me, thinking about my time at a working at the grocery store, if you listening to this have ever worked at a grocery store, especially behind a cashier, you are familiar with, I'm almost certainly familiar with the fact that, that at grocery stores, they have like internal monthly contests about who can be the best cashiers, the fastest cashiers. Like they have at my grocery store, they had like a big graph of all the different, um, all the different cashiers and it's like number of customers and fastest time like whoever has the, the best checkout rate uh who who can bag the most groceries the fastest so putting everybody in competition with each other for meager bonuses that's a that's a great way to encourage new workers to completely fuck up whatever balance everybody else has and i think that's an interesting thing that doesn't doesn't really uh, it's 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 just interesting reading about this stuff, you know, reading this history and reflecting on it in the context of my own history with work and how how often it felt like 
I was treated as an immature child for feeling tired, not necessarily wanting to work all of the time. And yet here are these workers who are like, you know, they're doing their, 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 their job is like the job, the American job. And they're still, it's the same shit. People don't want to work all of the time, even when they work all of the time. Now, uh, the other thing that I want to talk about that is more related to the broader points I'm making about um, geek work here is, uh, what is this? This is trans questioning? We're talking about gender here? I don't fucking know. Anyway, so we're talking about, um, uh, uh, he's he's talking about a, a, a strike that his organization was involved in that was uh, actually a trucker strike. Around that time, owner-operator long-distance truckers went on a shutdown protesting high fuel prices. All over the country, they pulled their rigs into truck stops, turning them into centers of organization. Because in many cases they chose to pull in close to where they lived, their wives and girlfriends began showing up. The Gary Works was close to the intersection of two major interstate highways, and the truck stop at the intersection became one of the centers. STO members, STO is um, uh, the organization that Noel uh, works for, and I think co-founded. STO members moved temporarily to the truck stop to work directly with the strikers. Uh, Oh, it's the, sorry, STO stands for the Sojourner Truth Organization. One of our first actions was to help the truckers design a poster showing a photo of an actual striker's truck at the truck stop with a sign in the driver's window that read, shut down until dot dot dot. We printed the poster on STO's press and distributed it widely at the stop and in the Chicago area. In addition to printing the poster and talking with the wives and girlfriends of the truckers, STO members helped the truckers make contact with women living in the area whose husbands, brothers, or sons had shut down in other parts of the country. We hoped to persuade the strikers to broaden their demands to address not merely fuel but food prices. We also sought to build links between the strikers, largely white men, and people of Gary, whose population was largely black, by pointing out that we all shared an interest in keeping prices down. I recall a meeting at a member's home at which a black trucker reported that one of the whites, seeking to protect his rig and not recognizing him as a fellow driver, had leveled a shotgun at him while he was walking through the truck stop. I thought the presence of a black trucker at that meeting was a major achievement. For a short time, the work stoppage had a national impact, forcing the government to call out the National Guard in some areas. STO was perhaps the only radical group in the country to take the stoppage seriously. In part, our support was due to the fact that it reflected our vision of mass organization independent of the unions. As owner-operators, the truckers were formally self-employed, independent contractors who could not have formed a, a traditional union even had they desired to do so. This, this stands out to me because uh, that description of these truckers... Um, owner-operators, formerly self-employed, independent contractors. I feel like that implies to the entire gig economy. As a YouTuber, I am formally self-employed, but it's not like I can take my videos to another video-sharing platform. Like, what what are my options here? Vimeo sucks. Basically, I work for YouTube. If I make a video that doesn't fit the algorithm's... um, 
needs if I don't make something that is algorithm friendly, if I make something that has too much copyrighted content that, that, that gives it a strike or makes it, um, you know, YouTube punishes people who make videos that don't fit whatever it is the algorithm is hunting for. And so it is, it is employment without representation. Functionally, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a YouTube, I'm a, I'm an employee of YouTube, but I'm not because there's, I don't have a boss because I'm doing this voluntarily, but I've been doing this now for, for what, five, six years. Um, and I, I haven't had like a, a normal last job in, in the, in the, in the intervening years, really. If I were to stop doing this and start doing something else, I would have a, a very difficult time finding a gig that um, wouldn't break my spine over my own knee. You know what I mean? And I th I've been worrying about this a lot as the American empire is, is crumbling into dust before our very eyes. And I, I, you know, I, have, I have a lot of optimism about the unionization movement happening uh, here in the States. It's, it's really good to see so many workers uh, suddenly having this level of consciousness and, and deciding that no, actually, as workers, we, we deserve representation of ourselves and um, should wield collective power against bosses. Uh, that's great. My worry is that like the shop that sells the coffee is just one part of a much more complicated economic relationship that the corporation has with its product. And I see you know, unionizing baristas is a good thing. But if those baristas then go on to say, like, say, say that there does become, you know, a, a standard union contract for Starbucks workers, and it's good enough, let's say it's good enough. And they say, all right, well, we're just gonna keep on doing what we're doing. And uh, we're not gonna strike again, because we've got ours. What about the people who grow the coffee? What about the workers who, who uh, load it onto trucks and ship it across the ocean? What about the environmental impact of, coffee, of, of mass global coffee farming and the exploitation that goes into doing that at the scale that this kind of operation requires? If these unionized baristas don't have solidarity with their international fellows who are caught in the same chain, the same exploitative chain of, of, of labor uh, that they are, then the whole thing remains unsustainable. And I think there is something to be said of the fact that the, the, the work model itself that we have in this country is unsustainable. Will there still be baristas after the revolution? Yes, I'm sure there will people there will be people who make fancy coffee. But will there be as many? <laughs> Should there be as many? Um, and I, I, I have been thinking a lot about how we understand progress in this country and, and within the neoliberal order as it stands. We see progress as this primarily technological thing that occurs when somebody releases a new technology and it revolutionizes the world. You know, Steve Jobs pulls the iPhone out of his own personal ass and delivers it in a gold gift wrap to the, the American people. And everybody says, thank you, sir. I love uh, giving up my time to a corporation by using apps. 
I can't wait for apps to take over the world. It's going to make the internet so much better. I can't wait for Steve Jobs to personally shoot Adobe Flash in the face. Um, I'm not, I've got more coffee. I guess I should finish this cup first. Anyway, <laughs> I'm still waking up here. It's 9.30 now. Anyway, I, I think like a lot of people right now who are a lot of millennials, I have a fascination with uh, the technology of the 70s. I, I, I love tape players. I love record players. I love a lot of the consumer tech of the era. And, you know, it's probably foolish of me to think of that in, in, as being part of a separate process. These are still private companies making technological doodads to uh, make a profit. You know, creating creating an, an, an artificial demand for for a product that nobody actually needs. Although, <clears throat> I would say that entertainment is is a necessity. Entertainment is not frivolous. Um, I would not say that like a record player or a radio or an MP3 player uh, is like a frivolous thing. Uh, I would say that that music is is as essential a part of human existence as 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 any art is, anything that is as soul-enriching as food is enriching to the body. Um, and I think any construction of society that says that, like, you have the hierarchy of needs that is purely biological, and that is it, it's like sort of missing the cart. Uh, missing, putting putting the trees before the forest. <laughs> as I'm trying to imagine... A better future, which I know is a bold thing to be trying to do here in, in 2022. I'm thinking a lot about the missteps of the past, and, and there's all this, um, there's all sorts of things that are on my mind right now. Everything is everything else. But I, I think about the record player that I have. I, uh, I got it used uh, maybe eight or nine years ago from a, uh, a thrift store in Stillwater, Oklahoma. And it's busted down a bunch of times. It's a little belt-driven thing. It's similar to one I had as a, as a kid. I, I've wanted to upgrade for a while, but um, <laughs> I, I barely use it anyway, so it's not really an upgrade I can justify. But um, I found the manual for it online when I was trying to fix it. Uh, somebody had scanned the manual for this. And it, and it fascinated me because this machine comes with a detailed circuit diagram and, like, not just troubleshooting steps, but like a mechanical operations manual. A, you can take this apart and replace individual circuit pieces and individual mechanical pieces. And it gives like lists of, of retailers and stuff that, that, that handle that kind of thing. And that's just completely absent now. Uh, and, I, and I think about that sometimes about, you know, obviously there is, there is a, a technological conspiracy i don't want to i i feel like that word has become tainted by our understanding of conspiracy theories now in in fascist america uh post alex jones post tucker carlson america but i i don't think it's terribly controversial to say that that tech corporations have made it their duty to uh remove user control as much as possible in favor of a sort of omni-tech that works the same for everybody. And there is no, like, like you can't, the most customization you can get for Twitter, right, is, is changing the color that you see of, like, 
the, the flavor color of, of your tweet button or whatever. And there's like six colors that you can pick from, but you can't change how your page looks. Uh, whereas older blogs, you could just do that with HTML. And now, of course, there are website makers that you can use, but they all have like their own limited set of options. And then they have their premium options that are fancier that you can buy, even though they're just bits of code. It's just fancy CSS <clears throat> and HTML. And now everything is, is chock full of middlemen charging pennies at every single stage of interaction between people. Uh, in an economic sense. And our sense of progress has just sort of led us to this moment where corporations own all of our time and all of our essential daily functions. They collect all sorts of profits off of what are essentially taxes. Subscription software services are a progressive tax on the working class. When you've got like website hosts like like Squarespace and you've got podcast hosting sites and you've got the Adobe suite and then you've got Netflix and you've got Hulu and you've got HBO Now and you've or HBO Max and you've got Disney Plus and and Paramount Plus. And then maybe you've got like a coffee subscription where somebody sends you a, a box of coffee every day or every month every day. Jesus. And all of these, like, you know, you, you, you fall for these subscription things, right? Because it's like, oh, yeah, 10 bucks a month for Spotify. I can, I can live with that. You know, I listen to enough music to justify that. And you don't really think about it because you're like, oh, 10 bucks a month. That's whatever. That's nothing. But it adds up. And when everything becomes a, a subscription service, it all adds up. And it becomes this progressive tax that by necessity, just in the exact same way that sales tax is a progressive tax on the, on the poor, uh, it, it, it takes a larger chunk of your overall income uh, as a poor person or even as, as, as a quote-unquote middle-class person compared to somebody who is rich, like somebody who makes you know, $15,000, $20,000 a month or whatever, you know, they're not going to bat an eye at a Spotify subscription uh, or, or an Adobe Premiere or Adobe Creative Cloud subscription or any of this other shit. And I'm sure there's a million other of these things uh, in every different service that you can imagine now. I mean, we have an economy that's just... It, it, all programming jobs are just for companies that have made themselves middlemen. My overall point here is that there is, a, there is an inherent precarity to the workforce in America right now that I don't think we really appreciate because we are all stretched so thin because everybody has to work all of the time and free time is a thing of the past. It is, it is, uh, you have your work hours and then your non-work hours are hours that you are expected to be watching Netflix shows or doing Uber drives or making or watching YouTube videos, all of which are things that involve paying subscription fees or driving a car around the city and spending your own gas to deliver uh, food or uh, watching advertisements. That's time that you'll never get back, you know? That's And that's time that is enriching a corporation that does not care what happens to you, doesn't know your name, doesn't know that you exist, doesn't need to know that you exist. And labor organization <clears throat> is functionally impossible because 
all of all of our workforces have been distri- have been massively distributed like how do you have a, a how do you organize a youtuber strike because there are millions of youtubers everywhere in the world the conclusion that i reached is, uh, in terms of like how do you unionize youtube how do you effectively push back uh, against them as a worker as somebody who does videos and it, it kind of occurred to me that the only way to to really do it actually is to think about it in terms of YouTube is not a video company. YouTube is a tech company in the same way that Tesla is a tech company and Spotify is a tech company. And so you have to understand that the product is is no longer... Um... Hello. <laughs> I was hoping I would be able to finish this before you woke up. I'm recording a podcast. It's okay. No, it's not your fault. I love you. So anyway, when you when you understand these things as tech companies and you understand that as workers, like as a YouTuber, I am I am not an employee of of YouTube, uh, but the programmer, the, the the tech workers who uh, run the software that is the hub of YouTube, the place where everybody interfaces with YouTube, both as uh, a freelancer and as a consumer. Those are the people who are actual employees. And so, to my mind, the way that you actually agitate for union activity or, or better, better working conditions or even just some sort of like actual conditional state of employment is to unionize the, the tech workers and to create a sense of cross-field solidarity um, so that those tech workers, once unionized, can agitate in favor of the independent contractors, can threaten to go on strike in solidarity with us, because they're the ones who are at the levers of, of the actual machine. And that's just a big ask. I don't know. That's a really big ask, this, this level of, of solidaristic unionization and this pro this book acceptable men uh beyond the striking workers uh trying to protect their ability to be lazy on the job essentially uh i think the other the other major current of the book is how systemic racism and essentially white supremacy fundamentally holds back the unionization effort and the revolutionary movement because you have this interracial distrust and you know white people don't show up for black people and the result is uh, is a splintered labor movement that is ultimately weak and this is what always happens is we, we we draw these artificial lines in the sand between different jobs and we say you know this type of worker is good but this type of worker is bad and obviously like you know fuck cops they're not real workers they're fascist police but we are living in the shadow of of a multi-decades-long project of decoupling labor from the workplace and decoupling the position of being a worker from the work itself and decoupling reality from politics, essentially. The entire neoliberal project has been basically washing ideology from the historical record not really teaching what Marx or Lenin or, or, or the, rev- the, the revolutionary movement in Russia was about, not teaching the history of any revolutionary movement in any other country, 
and and just sort of listing names and saying, oh, there was this thing called communism and it lost because it was worse than capitalism. They teach you these these neoliberal values of uh, self-reliance and individual personal responsibility. At jobs, we're told, don't talk about don't talk about your your wages, don't talk about shifts, don't talk about unions, especially. God, no, you can't talk about unions. And, you know, we're in a tough moment as we're <clears throat> trying to counteract this decades-long project of, of de-radicalizing people and getting us to just sort of be formless, thoughtless laborers who, who, who believe that we don't have any rights and that we're just, you know, that work is good for its own sake. Uh, I work at I work at McDonald's because I love it and because it's what I it's my my duty as an American to be uh, verbally assaulted by strangers for eight hours a day six days a week. That's a joke. Nobody gets full time work anymore because if you got full time work, you would be entitled to benefits. So everybody's doing part time, which means everybody has to work multiple jobs, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So we have this you know, this this propagandized, sort of ideologically brainwashed uh, uh, upbringing. And that's that's a lot to work against. I know it, it's taken me, I'm 33 now, it's taken me a long time to arrive at the politics that I have now. But I do think that there is some some measure of hope to be drawn from the fact that there is this this decades-long project to... Uh, basically erase the labor movement from American history and whitewash it and boil it down to a narrative about inevitable progress that was primarily capitalistic, even though many of the the people that are celebrated in this history were not only fervent anti-capitalists, but were often assassinated by the state. And yet, in spite of all that, you know, I don't want to essentialize and say that Bernie Sanders is the uh, is 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 to blame for all of this, but I think Bernie was the the first introduction a lot of Americans had to any kind of materialist leftism, and I think there's something really hopeful to be found in the fact that it's been this decades-long project that cost millions of dollars and has taken this mass sort of state by state and government level conservative project, and it basically just took one guy saying the right things in the right place to get uh, historic numbers of people unionizing again, to, to get people to recognize that actually they do have rights as workers. I think it's very easy right now to be hopeless and to have a certain level of nihilism about the future <laughs> and our place in this world and, and the nature of work in America and uh, I know this is supposed to be a podcast about gender, <laughs> but uh, my thoughts on uh, gender and sexuality have become inextricable from my thoughts on work, because of course your gender determines the kind of work that you get, and when you're transgender that becomes immensely more complicated. That's a subject for another day. But I, I do believe that the forces that push back against labor movements that push back against collective action, revolutionary action, they have to work so fucking hard to, to win. They require so much money and so many tanks because their status quo is fragile. Because they know, they know the truth. They've always known. And it requires the exploitation of the working class 
on a mass scale in order for their lifestyle to continue. So they invest huge resources into putting the workers' movement down, and all it takes for the workers' movement to come right back is just one guy saying the right things in the right place. I think that a level of solidarity and labor consciousness is actually pretty natural for people because we are a cooperative species and it requires an immense expenditure of resources to create and maintain this artificial environment of separation between human beings and it takes very very little to shatter that actually and you know, the history of leftist movements throughout world history is one that's often tinged with tragedy and regrets and would-have-beens and, you know, what-ifs. But I do think that there is some hope to be found in the fact that even in, uh, even though that is the case, the fact is that the ruling establishment knew that these people were right, that they would win if they were left unopposed, because there are more of us than there are of the, the rich and powerful. There always have been and there always will be. And, you know, for as many tragedies and, and, and failed attempts as there have been, there are, there are attempts that succeeded. And there are lessons to be learned and there's hope to be had for a future that is better. Um, and I, I, you know, I have my own, my own reservations about trade unionism as a, as, as a be-all, end-all. I think it is only the first step. But as far as steps are concerned, considering where labor consciousness was uh, five years ago uh, in this country, I would say we've come a pretty fucking long way. And now is the time for us to be screaming solidarity forever. For, for all of the working class, for all who are exploited by the system, uh, most especially the homeless, the imprisoned, um, the, the indigenous, the queer. And uh, that's sort of, I guess that's where my head is at right now. Uh, you've caught me on, a, on an uncharacteristically optimistic mood, given the doom and gloom I've been feeling for the last uh, year. Um... Well, I guess that's going to do it for this podcast. <laughs> Thank you all so much for listening. And uh, you can you can find me on Twitter at HMSNoFun. You can support my work on Camaraderie, which is a leftist co-op alternative to Patreon. That's camaraderie.co slash Sarah Zedig. I'm also still on Patreon, uh, patreon.com slash LTAS. I am going to phase out Patreon eventually, but camaraderie is still very much in uh, in the alpha stages. So uh, whichever one is easier for you or most convenient for you, that's fine. I won't be killing my Patreon anytime soon. The intro music is by Molly Noise. Cover art is by Deerwitch. Uh, thank you all again so much for what, for listening. And uh, I'll see you again on the next one. 